It's our privilege tonight to come together around the Word of God, so I'll ask you to open your Bibles with me to John's Gospel. John chapter 11 is where we find ourselves as we continue our study through this great account of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. I want to begin our time tonight just by reading for us verses 17 to 26 as we'll spend our time in that portion. It was good to hear what you were saying about Christianity and about the misconceptions because I think we'll see some of them even in our text tonight as we think about what Jesus is saying here. Beginning in John chapter 11 and verse 17, John says this, So when Jesus came, that is, came to Bethany, he found that he, that is Lazarus, had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. Martha, therefore, when she heard that Jesus was coming, went to meet him. But Mary still sat in the house. Martha therefore said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Even now I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother shall rise again. Martha said to him, I I, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me shall live even if he die. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? I have to admit, in my study of this passage this week, I've somewhat struggled. And I've struggled for a couple of reasons. I think one of which is common to all of us. Study takes a lot of effort, a lot of time, a lot of mental effort, and I guess in that sense I'm no different than any of you. I struggle with that. It's hard work. Much like all of you who are here, in our humanness we gravitate towards ease, towards things that are not so hard to do. And so uh, that's one of the reasons I've struggled with this this week. But there's another reason, and that is this. Each and every time I come to the Word of God, each and every time I open the Scriptures to look at them, I seem to be in a constant search for something new. Uh, for something I, I may not have known before. Something that I haven't seen before. Some, something that in my mind may be a profound truth that I had not really seen or realized. And the more and more I spend time in the Gospel of John, the more I find that it isn't the new truths that I am discovering, but rather it's the old truths that I've heard and read before. And by God's grace, I need to just be applying them fresh in my life. For anyone who's ever been a Christian a long time, This is what happens with us. We get so familiar with Scripture. We get so familiar with things that we read 
that oftentimes the truths that we hear, and we've heard them many, many times, we tend to just breeze right over them. We tend to just kind of skim them over and, and say, oh, yeah, yeah, I've heard that before. And we continue to search for something that's new rather than just take the time to actually see if we're even doing what we've already heard. And I believe that's exactly why God has us studying the Gospel of John. Many of us believe that it is really an elementary book. In fact, we will oftentimes tell people, if you want to know Jesus, read the Gospel of John. We hand the Gospel of John even out. And it's right to do that. And yet many of us believe that it is a book for the new baby, even baby Christian. God is reminding us that this book is for every Christian, no matter our spiritual maturity. John tells us why he wrote the things in which he wrote. And it it, it continually strikes me to think about this. He he wrote it that we might believe that Jesus is the Christ, that he is the Son of God, and that believing we might have life in his name. So for the unbeliever, that is a new truth. What is said here in the Gospel of John is all new. It's something they may have never heard before, something that is fresh to them. No longer are they doomed to an eternity in hell, but through the Lord Jesus Christ, God has made a way for them to be forgiven of their sins. That's new truth. There's a way for them to now live for God's glory and not their own. Maybe the first time they're confronted with that in their own heart, in their own mind, the fact that this man named Jesus Christ is in fact the Son of God in the flesh, that He is God incarnate. It may be new for them, and yet for those like you and I, who are believers, that information is not new at all. In fact, it's old news, isn't it? It's news we've heard before. It's news we may have heard for the first time decades ago. It's old news, and that is why it's perplexing to me that when you come to John chapter 11, Jesus Christ continues to ask this question. Do you believe this? Do you believe this? That's what he asks Martha in our the section we're looking at tonight. He asks, uh, the, the implication is that Mary needed this question even asked to her because Mary asked Jesus the same question. And I don't believe that he's asking that question of Martha in order to cause Martha or any of us to go away wondering as to whether we are saved or not. I believe he's asking that question simply to cause us to think about what it means to believe. What does it really mean to believe? We've talked about tonight, we've mentioned tonight many things about what's confusing or what seems to be confusing about Christianity. I think this is a main issue. What does it mean to believe? 
What does it mean when someone says, I'm a Christian? When you and I say that we believe in something, what is it that we are saying? Are we saying that we've learned facts about a particular thing, a particular item, a particular person? We've learned some facts about that. And intellectually we believe that it is what it says it is or that it will do what it says it will do. Is that what we mean when we say we believe in something? If that is, in fact, how we define belief, then our belief will never change our lives. Because intellectual belief only goes as far as words. But true belief in something or true belief in someone always produces in our lives action upon that belief. Movement based upon that belief. In other words, true belief always motivates the one believing to modify their life according to that belief. Otherwise, it's not true belief. Maybe it's better understood with the word trust. Maybe that's a better word, trust. Maybe, maybe you can even put that here in Jesus' words to Martha. Do you trust this? If you truly trust something or someone, you will act upon that trust. I remember when my kids were younger, and you can ask my son about this who's here tonight. When they were young, I liked to play a game with them when they were kids. And I would say to them, stand there. By your, stand, stand next to me or in front of me and put your hands by your side and I will stand behind you and put your feet together. And what I want you to do is I want you to just fall backwards. I will catch you. Trust me. Inevitably, they would stand there and they would begin to fall. And as they began to fall, what would happen? Their foot would come out. They would catch themselves as they were falling. And I would say to them, why did you put your foot out? Don't you trust me? They said that they trusted me. You see, what we say we trust and what we actually trust can be two different things. Because our actions oftentimes betray our words, just like my Children's actions would betray their words in trusting me. To truly believe something means we act upon that belief. We live according to that belief. And it is true belief. True belief always begins with intellect. It always begins with words. But real belief does not stop there. Real belief always moves to the point of action. And that is the very principle that Christ is teaching in this text. And that is why I say for us tonight, for some, this may be a new truth that we are discovering. But for most here tonight, my thought probably is that this is an old truth. 
an old truth that you know, but it's an old truth you continually struggle with applying. If you're like me, you continue to put your foot out to catch yourself. Each one of us has weak faith. So how can it be strengthened? That's the question. How can it be strengthened? Now, we be, before we begin to look at Jesus' statement in verse 25 and 26, we need to put ourselves into the shoes of Martha. Because Martha is a great picture of all of us who have weak faith. We remember what is happening here in John chapter 11, right? Jesus has delayed his return to Bethany. Jesus has heard about the sickness of Lazarus, and because he loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, verse 5 tells us he waits two more days in the place where he was. And so Jesus arrives eventually into Bethany, and Lazarus has been in the grave already four days. It says that in verse 17. When Jesus came, he found that he had already been in the tomb four days. He was apparently, Jesus was, apparently a day's journey away, and he stayed there two more days when he had heard what was taking place, and then it took a day to travel. So Jesus knew by his own omniscience that Lazarus had already died. This is why Jesus tells us in verse 17 that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Jesus had only waited two days, and it was a day's journey. That would have been three days. So Lazarus had to already have been in the grave when he heard the news of Lazarus being sick and actually probably dead already. So Lazarus was already there. By the time word came to Christ, Jesus knew of the sickness before. Jesus is omniscient. Jesus is God. Jesus knew what was taking place. So that through this sickness, as verse 4 told us, the sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God might be glorified in it. Jesus knew all of that, but Martha didn't know that. And because her faith was weak, she didn't understand all of that either. When we think about this, I want to ask us a question. Where does weak faith come from? Where does weak faith come from? Weak faith, I believe, comes from one or a combination of three different things. One or a combination of three different things. First, it comes either from a wrong experiential understanding of who God is in His very character. In other words, we have defined God differently than God has defined Himself. In some kind of way, we have, we have morphed the character and nature of God in our minds in such a way that God is no longer the God that He has defined Himself to be. He is a God of our own making. And so because we rely on that definition of God for our understanding, when it comes to the time when we must trust God, we are trusting in a God of our own making rather than the God of Scripture. Not only offers weakness. Or, or it comes from a 
wrong experiential understanding of who Christ is in his person and character. And we see that here in this text tonight. This is almost the same as the first way weak faith comes when we disregard who God is or create a God of our own making in some kind of way. We do the same with Jesus Christ. And although we say we believe in Jesus, we believe in this one who says he's God because we've redefined who this Jesus is, our faith is weak. Martha did that. Martha had redefined who Jesus was. The third place that weak faith comes from is it comes from a wrong experiential understanding of the implications of salvation. For our own self-imposed ignorance. For our own self-imposed inability or, or unwillingness to learn what the Scriptures teach. We don't understand or even try to understand the implications of salvation for our lives right now. And I think all of those three are here in this chapter. A redefining of who God is by His very character, a redefining of who Jesus Christ is by who He is in His very nature and character, and a misunderstanding of what salvation means here and now. When I say experiential, by the way, I do not mean something mystical. I do not mean something strange. I just merely mean an understanding that comes through practice. An understanding of God, an understanding of Jesus Christ, an understanding of salvation that comes through practicing obedience to the things that God has told us. In other words, when you and I do not have an understanding of God through practice in trusting in His character and who He is by how He has defined Himself, we will have weak faith. When you and I, as those who are Christians who say we believe in Jesus Christ, when we do not trust in the biblical description of the person and work of Christ, as the Bible describes it for us, we will have weak faith. When you and I do not experientially understand through practice the truths of our salvation in Christ, we will have weak faith. Why? Because trust or faith, those are synonymous terms in this Bible, particularly in this gospel, the gospel of John, who wrote it that we might believe, right? Trust and faith is always based upon the character and the nature of the object trusted. In other words, when my children, when my, when my kids were younger, when they began to trust me in our little game because I, I proved to be trustworthy through my actions, and although in Scripture we know believing is seeing, not seeing is believing, and so we should trust God because He is already trustworthy even if He never showed it. My children began to trust me because I showed myself trustworthy. In other words, when they fell, I catch them. 
God has seen fit to show us that He is more than trustworthy by how He's acted toward us even though we don't deserve any of His mercy. So to be a true believer in God and yet balk at trusting Him is to have weak faith. So what does weak faith do? Weak faith, number one, notice this, weak faith always limits God. Weak faith always limits God. This both Mary and Martha did. Look at what Martha says in verse 20. Right? Verse 17 uh, through verse 20 uh, is, is the transition reality. Jesus is on the move. He finally arrives in Bethany, which is just a short uh, couple miles from Jerusalem. And many of the Jews had come out from Jerusalem to Martha and Mary. And so Martha hears that Jesus is coming and she goes to meet him and Mary sits in the house. But Martha says to Jesus in verse 21, Lord, now just in this statement we get an understanding of her definition of God, her definition of Jesus. Lord, If you had been here, my brother would not have died. Mary says the same thing, verse 32. Therefore, when Mary came where Jesus was, she saw him and fell at his feet, saying, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. In other words, Jesus if you were actually in this place when this event happened and you can transport your own life into that event or into any event in your life, whatever it may be, in this case it was the sickness of her brother, it was the devastating reality that her brother was on the throes of death. If you were here when that happened, if you actually were in this place with me when it happened, then you could have done something. You could have prevented this if you were here. Jesus, I believe that you are the Christ. I believe that you are the Son of God. But I don't believe, through my actions at least, that you transcend time. If you had been because you were not here physically you were not here at all in just one small little statement you can see what Martha believes about Jesus Christ which in one small statement is what she believes about God that God cannot deal with Martha's issues unless he's there That Jesus could not deal with the issues unless He were there. She has redefined who Christ is. She has redefined who God is. And because she has done this, at least in her mind now, she is trusting. But in her actions, she has weak faith. We do this constantly, don't we? Don't we do that? We say we believe that Jesus is capable of doing what He says He will do. 
tell other people, we believe in Jesus. I mean, we believe. Then we turn right around and say by our actions, I, I don't believe you can. Now, why do we doubt the character of God? Why do we doubt in practice who God is? In James chapter 1, I think we get a little bit of an answer to that. Go over to James chapter 1 for a moment. Here's what James says, beginning in verse 5 of chapter 1. But if any of you lacks wisdom, wisdom is the skilled living. Living that would bring honor and glory to God. Skilled living. That's really what wisdom means. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God. Well, which God is that, James? Which God do we ask? James says, well, it's the God who gives to all men generously and without reproach. So James defines the very character of the God whom we're to go and ask. It's the God who who gives to all men generously and without reproach. It's that God. It's not the God who's going to withhold something from you. It's not the God who's going to say, well, wait a minute, you don't get to have that. Or wait a minute, I'm out to get you. It's the God who gives generously. That's the God who we go to. That's the very character of God. James defines God by his character. That's the God we trust to give us wisdom. And it will be given to him. Verse 5 says, it will be given him. But, Notice verse 6. But let him ask in faith without doubting. Without doubting. What are you doubting when you're doubting? You're doubting the very character of God. You're doubting who God said He is. We're, we're questioning whether God is actually the one who can accomplish the very things that we're going to ask Him for, which here is wisdom in a situation. We're to ask in faith without doubting. Doubting is weak faith. Why are we not to doubt? Why are we not to doubt? What are the consequences of weak faith? What are the consequences of doubting? Well, verse 6 through 8 tell us, But let him ask in faith without doubting, for the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. The surf of the sea doesn't go wherever it wants to. It goes wherever the wind forces it to go. Let not... That man expect that he will receive anything from the Lord. Why? Because he's double-minded. Unstable in all his ways. Hesitating to go anywhere because he's just not sure what's going to happen. He has such a weak faith. He doubts that God is actually who God says he is. That he's not even moving. What's the context in which James is writing those very words? The context 
is difficulty. Times of trial. Times of hardship. Times of struggle. Verse 2, consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. Why? Because you know the testing of your faith produces endurance, and you're to let endurance have its perfect result that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. But if you lack, go to God, ask God. God's the one who gives generously. He'll, He'll give it. The times when our trust, the times when our faith is tested to its potential, the times when the rubber band of our faith is stretched and and needs to grow strong, that's what God is doing with Martha and Mary in John chapter 11. It is the moment of crisis. It's the moment of difficulty. Martha is just like we are. This is what God does with us all the time. He's testing our faith. Strengthening our faith. He's helping us just like He's helping Martha and Mary what? To have a stronger faith. he's, He's not saying they don't have any faith. He's not saying they don't believe anything. Even even Martha expresses that reality. I know that he will rise again in the resurrection in the last day. That's faith. There's some faith. He's not saying they don't have any. But he wants them to see where their faith is weak and how it can be strong. Weak faith always limits God. Always limits God. Secondly, secondly is this. Weak faith detaches God from life in the present. Weak faith detaches God from life in the present time. This is so crucial for us to look at and know. Look at what Jesus says to Martha in verse 23. Right? Martha has, has some kind of faith. Even now, I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. She, she's redefined Jesus to the reality that He's not even God. I know that if you ask God, God will give it to you. He, he's not even God. She's redefined Him already. She redefined God the Father already. But notice what Jesus says to her. Verse 23. Your brother shall rise again, Martha. These words are words of encouragement to her. That is a direct promise of God. Your brother will rise again. That is a direct promise. You you might as well just put an exclamation point right at the end of that. These are words to strengthen her faith. These are words to strengthen our faith. And Martha does what we often do with the promises of God. We hear God say something. We read what God has said by way of promise and we detach it from the here and now. You know what we do? We move it into the future. It's not that we just don't believe the promise at all. We just move it into the future. We're just like Martha. Look at what Martha said. Verse 24. I know. 
that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. You see, Jesus is giving her an an automatic, ironclad promise. And Martha just goes, yeah, yeah, I know, I know. That's a future thing. That's a future reality. That's not a present day reality. That's a future reality. Before we get too hard on Martha, we need to understand something. Martha has the mindset of every Jew, particularly the Pharisees. Even the Pharisees believed that the resurrection was an event that was going to take place in the future. Now, there's some partial truth to that. What does that have to do with my present situation? That's the reality of what Martha is saying here. I I know that there's going to be a resurrection on the last day, but what's that got to do with right now? Like a gal asked me one time in marriage counseling when I asked her about her salvation to share with me her salvation story. She said, what does that have to do with my marriage? That's a great question. a revealing question, but it's a great question. She was doing the same thing. We're here to deal with my marriage. What's that got to do with it? That's what Martha's doing. We're here to deal with my brother. What's the resurrection in the future have to do with the here and the now? And this is often exactly what we do with the promises of God for our lives, particularly when it comes to our salvation. This is one of the misnomers of of Christendom, of evangelicalism. We, we think our salvation is a fire insurance policy in the back of our pocket for a day in the future. We say we believe God, that God has saved us. We say we believe that we are His children. We talk with present tense terms. That we have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, just like Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. Then we begin to live our everyday lives as if that were not so. As if those promises were future and had nothing to do with right now. And what we're doing when we do that is we're treating God impersonally. And we do this specifically with the promise of eternal life. Eternal life. Now, I want us to listen here. Eternal life with Christ. Eternal life with Christ does not begin in the future when we physically die. Do you understand that about your salvation? Your eternal life does not begin at some point in the future after you physically die. Your eternal life began when you embraced Christ by faith. Maybe it's even more accurate to state it this way. It began at the point at which God embraced you and gave you the gift of faith. It began the day we were saved and it continues throughout all eternity. You see, sometimes we put our eternal life sometime in the future But eternal life began the day we were saved by God because that is the day we began to truly know God. 
Let me just show you this in Scripture, particularly in John's Gospel, because John uses this term eternal life 17 different times in the Gospel, and each time it is used, eternal life is both present tense and it's predicated on the reality of knowing God. Knowing God in a real way. Let me just show you a few examples. Go back for a moment back to John chapter 3. John chapter 3. We often take people to this verse when we might be sharing the gospel with them. John 3 verse 36. He who believes in the Son, what? has eternal life. That's a present tense reality. He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Present tense. We have eternal life here and now. Not some future thing, but right now. John chapter 5. Verse 24, truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me. So you hear the words of Jesus, you believe in God who sent Jesus, God the Father. You have eternal life presently. You don't come into judgment, but you have passed out of death into life. Present tense. Again. John chapter 6, verse 47, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. Verse 54 of that same chapter, He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Oh, now there's a future reality. I will do that. Why? Because you have an intimate relationship with me. John 17. Jesus' prayer to the Father concerning his own. Verse 2. Well, we'll start in verse 1 because it's odd to just begin in verse 2. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you, even as you gave him authority over all mankind, that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. And what is eternal life? Here it is. And this is eternal life, that they may what? Know you. There's a knowledge of God. The only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. You see... Eternal life is a present tense reality. And it is, notice, based upon the experiential knowledge, the experiential knowing, if you will, of God. And that eternal life, that belief, that experiential knowing of God through faith, by faith in Jesus Christ, produces in us action in this life, here and now. It's not just words. It's actually living according to the very words that we say. It's easy for us to rejoice in the power of God for the future. All the while we doubt today, isn't it? 
Easy to do that. Oh, yeah, I got my fire insurance picked up. I mean, I see people who claim Christianity all the time like this. I believe in Jesus, but they're living like the world. They continue to live as as if that's some future event and it has no effect on them right now. They've redefined this whole idea of eternal life and what salvation is. And in doing so, it's because they've redefined who God is and redefined who Jesus Christ is and the implications of salvation right now. Is it any wonder they have weak faith when trouble strikes? They may not even have faith at all. They say something like, someday the world's going to burn up. Christ is going to come marching in on the white horse. Someday there will be a new heaven and a new earth. They say that. Sometimes we think like that. And then when we run into a problem in our day, right now, we have an anxiety attack because we fail to realize that God can also work in the present. We've transported Him to the future, and when trouble strikes, we operate like James chapter 1 in a doubting way. That's foolish thinking, isn't it? It's foolish. If we can trust God for our future, then we can trust Him for our present day. His power does not change. So, how does Jesus in John chapter 11 then deal with Martha? How does He deal with her weak faith? How does He deal with us when we come with weak faith? When we come with half faith and half doubt? How does Jesus deal with that? I think the same way He deals with Martha. Verse 25 and 26. Jesus says to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in Me shall live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. You know what Jesus is doing? He's informing her understanding. He's saying to her, listen, Martha, it's immaterial whether you're talking about the past or whether you're talking about the present or whether you're talking about the future. I am the resurrection and the When you say that your brother will rise again in the resurrection on the last day, I'm the resurrection. I'm it. You don't have to worry about the last day. You don't have to worry about the present day. You don't have to worry about the past day. If you know me, you're in. You know the resurrection. It is a present tense reality with us. We have been raised. Why? Because Jesus Christ has been raised. He is the resurrection and the life. Don't you understand that, Martha? I want to inform your understanding. Resurrection and life eternal is not a future event. It is a here and now event that carries into the future. You see, Martha had pushed God's resurrection power into the future. And Jesus 
says it's here right in front of you, Martha. It's me. In other words, time's not the issue, Martha. Whether I was here or whether he's been in the grave four days or whether I never came, that's not the issue. It's never been the issue. It should never be the issue. I will resurrect Lazarus whenever I design to do so in a, in, in a way that he will come to life. But the fact of the matter is whether I ever do that is irrelevant. I am the resurrection. If you are mine, you are and will be raised. What's the application for us? What's it for us today? I think it's the same as it was for Martha. And it's just that little question right at the end of verse 26. Do you believe me? Do you believe me? You see, Jesus has said, I am the resurrection and the life. And then he gives a physical example of that. Even if somebody dies, I make them alive. And he's going to do that physically here in just a few short verses. And he gives a spiritual example in verse 26. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. That's the spiritual reality. There's the physical reality in verse 25. He who believes in me shall live even if he does die physically. He, so don't worry about your brother. He's died, but he, he's going to live. He, he's living. He's in me. He knows me. He gives a spiritual reality. Everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. That's the spiritual reality. And the response to the question is, Am I living in response to that belief? That's what Jesus is saying. Do you believe me? Are you going to carry out your life? Are you going to live that way, Martha? Do you believe this? Do you believe what I say? Martha even gives a little bit of her own faith, the growth of her faith. Even in verse 27, she says to him, Yes, Lord, I have believed that you are the Christ, the Son of God, he who comes into the world. And when she said this, she went away and went to Mary. A little bit better, a little more exercise of faith. Jesus is being very specific here. The question is, do we believe this about him? Do we believe this about him? That's the human side of faith, isn't it? The gift of faith by God, and yet God doesn't exercise our faith. We must exercise the faith we are given. Do you believe this? Do you believe that Jesus Christ is not just the answer for salvation sometime in the future, but that he is the answer right here, right now. Do you believe that? You see, the guarantee that he is is only valid for those who believe Jesus is the Son of God and that he has the power that can raise any of us from the dead. 
once you believe that, death is no issue, is it? Then you can say with the Apostle Paul, what he said, O death, where is your sting? O grave, where is your victory? See, the only people in the world that can mock death are the Christians. They're the only people that can actually truly mock death. We're the only people in the world that can stare in the face of turmoil and trial with, with strength and with power. Why? Because those are just an entrance into God being glorified by it. Physical death can't break the continuity of eternal life. Because our eternal life began when we believed in Jesus Christ. John 17.3 says this is eternal life, that you might know God and the one whom he sent. Belief that results in salvation is a commitment to entrust your whole self to God, not just part of you. So I just leave us with that question. Do you believe it? Do you believe it? Let's pray. Father, thank you again for our time tonight. Thank you for this penetrating question for us as Christians. This is not an elementary book. It may be grammatically simple, but it is theologically profound, revealing the very character of you, the very heart of you, the very essence of what we have when we know you. You are indeed the resurrection and the life. Lord, help our unbelief. We believe Help our unbelief. Give us strength to endure when difficulty comes as we trust you. May we be those who are not tossed to and fro by doubting. May we run to you, the one who graciously gives wisdom from above, that we might stand strong and our faith would be strengthened. When others ask us why, why in the world would we stand in the midst of such turmoil with joy in our heart, we could simply just point to you, the anchor of our hope. Thank you for this picture to show us just exactly how we must believe. May you be pleased with our lives as we live for you. In Jesus' name we pray.